Good morning. How exciting to be studying God's Word together, amen? This is so thrilling. Take your Bible and let's look at Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, where we just finished a study on the prayer of the believer, how we're supposed to pray, the content of our prayers. The Lord was teaching us how to commune with Him. And it is true that all believers commune with the Lord freely, openly, and such a joy that God teaches us, as we learned, that He wants us to pray. He loves to hear from His people all the time in fellowship, communing with Him. This is the great joy of the believer, no longer a barrier. It is also true, however, that if you were to nurture unbelief in your heart, there is great peril ahead for those that do not know Christ and remain stubborn. There's even devastating ineffectiveness for the believer who nurtures unbelief in their heart because they come under the chastening of God and their Christian life becomes ineffective. What we have here in this section in Luke 11 is a warning discussion between Jesus and those who are at the height or pinnacle of their unbelief. Romans 1 teaches us that you're not born neutral. No one is born neutral. You young people may be uh, sort of coming up in the years and you think that you look at life from a position of neutrality and maybe you look at scientific evidence or you look at the world or you look at philosophical questions and you imagine that you're standing in some neutral position from which you're going to make some judgment. But you're not. Romans 1, 18 and following says that God's wrath is even now being stored up poured out in general ways across the globe and on people's lives and will one day be poured out completely and utterly in the most terrifying and frightening way against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. No one is neutral. We're born truth suppressors. We're bent against it. We hate it. Our mind goes against it. And and the reality of unbelief in the heart with which all of us are born is that the more you leave it there. The more you neglect it, the more you ignore unbelief in the face of what you keep getting revealed, what keeps getting revealed to you by Christ. The reality is, is that you morally implode to turn in on yourself to answer questions rather than turn to God and accept what he says of himself is to morally implode. It is to become more blind. It is to fall into a kind of internal disastrous, murky, foggy place where there is no truth and cannot be accessed. It is to harden against one's own eternal destiny. When man turns inward to himself, he becomes irrational. And frankly, in order to deny the truth, unbelievers will go to any illogical length, even those the world might say are the most intelligent. In 2008, you remember that film, uh, Expelled, you know, No Intelligence Allowed. It was a film that was set to interview scientists and the academic community and demonstrate how biased they are. And despite the endless debates as to whether the filmmakers were using trick questions in the interviews, all of that's gone on in the media when they interviewed the, the evolutionists and Despite all of that arguing, the, these brilliant atheists, if any atheist could be called brilliant, they gave answers that defied the rational. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist and author of the book The God Delusion, claimed during his interview, it's an interesting uh, 
section in the film, he claimed during the interview that the universe, because of what we know now by science and can observe, the universe could indeed have been intelligently designed by something outside of itself. He did admit what seems obvious to all, that there could be a an intelligent designer behind it all, but, he said, not the God invented by religious people. And when Ben Stein interviewed him and asked the question, well, then who or what else could have been the intelligent designer in the universe, Dawkins suggested either an alien being somewhere out there, of course, where did that come from? Never seemed to cross Dawkins' mind. Or he suggested that perhaps everything came into being through a collection of crystals. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> or as my kids would say when they, someone says something that doesn't go over very well, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I don't like it when they say that about me, but anyway. <laughs> One commentator, it was, it was Lenski's classic commentary. He said that opposition to Jesus regularly upsets men's logic. And they often put forth what is absurdly unsound as being convincingly sound, end quote. That's right. This is what you find happening all around Jesus' ministry in the nearly three years that he walked the earth. At this point in his life, as Luke is recording it here, he's heading to Jerusalem, as we know, and there is to be a final showdown and ultimately his death. So he's now back in Judea. The Galilean ministry is largely finished, although there's maybe a few little fringe moments of evangelism on the outskirts of Galilee. But he's back in Judea, and at this point, opposition to him among the religious elite is at fever pitch. Of that, there is no doubt. He'd had run-ins with Israel's leaders on every issue, and at this point, their hostility is well known throughout the land, even communities knew that they were plotting to end Jesus' life. Secretly hatched among the the inner council of the Sanhedrin were these plots to overtake Jesus in a crowd and kill him. His authority at almost every moment he opened his mouth was hotly contested. His teachings about dealing with the heart rather than the externals just to look righteous, these were things that humiliated the Pharisees and incited them to further rage. Everyone knew the Pharisees prayed in public so that they could be seen by men, but behind closed doors they were often living immoral lives, they were greedy and they were liars and hypocrites. Jesus was an offense to them at every turn because they wanted to deny the claim that he was the Messiah, yet they could not deny that he displayed divine firepower that that really did send messianic shockwaves through the land. Everybody knew what the Old Testament said who had any familiarity with it. This is messianic. His power is messianic. Nearly three years of displays of power over demons and disease and nature was unprecedented. But earlier, maybe about a year prior to this account that we have here, the the leaders of Israel threw down the gauntlet. Mark chapter 3 records that they threw down the gauntlet on Jesus' authority and the fact that, that he claimed to be the Messiah, and they said, look, this power that you display... Same thing Luke records here almost a year later. This was the go-to accusation. The power you display, it's not from God. It's not from God. 
Mark 3 records that Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, but whatever blasphemies they may utter, whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. End quote. That is an amazing statement. Jesus says there is a particular sin committed when he was on the earth at that time, when revelation was so profound and clear through the person of Christ, messianic revelation so powerfully displayed and uncontestable, that if you see the power of the Holy Spirit on display in the person of the Son of God himself, and you conclude it's demonic, you're gone. It's over unpardonable, unforgivable, because you are attributing to the Holy Spirit in classic revelation through His power displayed in the Son of God Himself, you're concluding the opposite. This sin occurred in a rather dramatic way in the hearts of Israel's leaders earlier in Galilee and now here again in Judea, so now it's entrenched. You can see the pattern. This is what they always said. They are hardened in it. No matter how many times Jesus had warned them. No matter that Mark records that he warned them then. This is unpardonable. Here they are a year later in Luke's gospel. They're being recorded as saying the same thing. This is blasphemy at a new level. They defiantly claimed that all the supernatural evidence proving that he was the Messiah is not proof at all. This basically sent word out over the land from the Pharisees, from Israel's leadership to God's people that Jesus isn't doing what he does by the holiness of God, by the holy ministry of God's spirit. They were basically saying, hey, look, we don't deny that you display breathtaking power over disease and over evil entities and even over nature, but your power is not from our holy God. It comes directly from the unholy power of hell itself. That's why in response to Israel's hard-hearted rejection, Matthew's gospel records that he started to speak in parables. You know, sometimes people think parables are just cute little Bible stories. Jesus was a great storyteller. Do you know that he tells the disciples when they ask him in Matthew 13, why are you suddenly speaking in veiled sayings? That's the, the New Testament word for the parable, a veiled saying where there's a principle that shoots down the middle of it. And if you have eyes of faith and ears of faith, you can hear the principle and know what the kingdom of God is like and what's required. But if you have pride and arrogance and you believe you're good enough and you'll never repent, if you believe Jesus isn't the Messiah, the parable blocks you from the truth. Here's how Jesus put it, Matthew 13. The disciples said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, verse 11, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Parables deliberately block hard-hearted, arrogant people from the truth. Jesus said, whoever has, to him more will be given, and he shall have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. That is a verse that basically reoccurs in Luke's account in chapter 8, and God says, don't squander what you've heard. Don't squander it. You hear revelation, tremble at it. Come under it. Humble yourself. Don't squander it. If you squander it, the little bit you have is going to be removed from you. It'll be taken away. You'll... You'll be left in your own blindness. This is why, though God sometimes is merciful years later, people have to go through years of scars and in peril the whole time because there is no guarantee. God is infinitely mercy, 
And, and we will see even some of it shockingly in this text. But God does sometimes judiciously harden when you refuse, when you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And this is the warning here. You remember when we studied Luke's gospel, essentially said the same thing. I'm going to take away what you've been given. Why? Because you just keep squandering it. This is the go-to accusation for Israel whenever God's power is on display. Ah, you're doing it by hell. You're the opposite of what you say. So in the narrative before us, Jesus exposes what happens literally to the human heart when men continue to suppress what God makes plain. This is the peril of it. This is the danger of it. And we see what happens here on the day when Christ was called the Antichrist. Follow along as I read in verse 14 through verse 26. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. And he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they're going to be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. And so it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Let's stop right there. Let's just sort of unfold the narrative. The first part of this is just this display of incontestable, undeniable, irrefutable power over evil. Verse 14, he was casting out a demon and it was mute and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed. And Luke just jumps into this like, like it's just a commonplace event. He, he's not really interested in elaborating on what happened. Other places, demons and, and their exorcism had been elaborated on. But here, Luke is rushing to get to the challenge and the, the slander against Jesus and Jesus' answer. Because he wants to get to warnings and a rebuke. Two rebukes, actually, and one warning. Luke is driving that direction. So he says very little about this awesome display of power over evil. Notice the demon was mute, it says. This literally just means that the demon was of a kind that seemed to specialize in tormenting its victim with mute, mutedness, or probably some commentators think deafness as well. 
So in other words, it victimized the uh, person because they disallowed them to communicate, clouded up their reasoning. They could not speak intelligibly so that they were isolated by the community. They could not hear intelligibly so they couldn't understand the community. And so therefore their reasoning, de- it just began to atrophy. Perhaps even the demon just clouded their reasoning altogether. And so that's why Luke records that when Jesus cast the demon out, the mute man spoke. The demons were much more active when Jesus was on the earth. The scriptures make that very plain, but it doesn't mean that people don't give themselves over to such things today. It's just that demons don't, don't readily show themselves because their, their tactic is deception. So human beings don't understand the supernatural and whatever realm they're able to live in and be empowered in, they would, they would send us all running and fleeing and they wouldn't be able to deceive us if they showed themselves so clearly. So they don't often do that. When Jesus was on the earth, it just got forced out into the open a lot and manifested some of the evil that goes on in some of these places. If you go to some cultures today where things like animism are rampant, you see demon possession or what appears to be the oppression of evil forces and spirits and things like that. But in more industrialized or even even uh, spiritualized countries where the Bible had any kind of influence over the last 500 years, you just don't see a, a lot of that, if at all. Um, here you had a demon that seemed to specialize in muting and making someone deaf and, and clouding their reasoning, making it all murky or unreasonable so that they got isolated. That was his torment. No communication with human beings, no ability to have a relationship like you would normally have as, as God has designed us for it. Can't understand other people. He gets isolated. He's, his mind is going. He's just tormented in that way. When Jesus comes along, it says he was casting a demon out, Luke says. This is the common thing that was going on. If you walked into Jesus' life, Luke says he was, on this occasion, casting out a demon. It was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. So the implication is that as everyone around stood and watched this, there was your clear evidence of divine firepower. The mute man spoke. He was suddenly a clear communicator, completely rid of any of any hellish evil that violently constricted his mind or his tongue. All that's gone, complete relief, totally over, no more isolation, renewed, restored, instantly. He was healed. It was total. It was undeniable. It wasn't like the staged nonsense that goes on today. People who profess to be able to do that kind of stuff. It's just ridiculous. We're told to put on the armor and take a stand as Christians, not wrangle our bony fingers at people who we say are demon-possessed and, you know, and act like we're casting something out. You don't, you don't do things like that. You might pray for someone who's oppressed or whatever, but, but that kind of stuff... Look, if you had some sort of gift of powers like the apostles had and 70 associates of the apostles, you would say what Jesus said, come out, and they come out. It's in a word or a touch, instantaneous, no rehabilitation, it's done. Totally healed. Undeniable. He was mute, he's not mute. He couldn't think, he can think. Couldn't communicate, he can communicate. Couldn't hear, he can hear. When I read this verse again, I I just had to back up for a moment and think about how a person comes to be under such influence and the staggering compassion of God in this moment. There's no indication the guy gets saved that we know of. But the compassion of God in this guy's life is staggering because 
How do you get to be overtaken at this level and so viciously afflicted by evil in the form of a demon? Not just evil influences, but the evil entity itself. Well, if you just study, you know, demon possession or study the biblical record of what these kinds of cases involved, it seems to us that you had to have been living in some kind of wickedness and unbelief that completely renounced reason. You, you renounce reason, it seems, in, in these cultures and subcultures where this went on, and you exalt mindless impurity, mindless sensuality, probably through ancient narcotics, turning inward, morally imploding, mindless sensuality and impurity, renouncing all your reason. And if you did that long enough in your life, you, you put yourself in association with a subculture over here that was occultic. So suddenly you got drawn into occultism where people believed they were talking to the dead. And let me just remind you that the reason Israel was forbidden from talking to the dead, seances, necromancy, you can go back and read it. The reason they were forbidden is because no one ever talks to the dead. If someone talks back to you from the other side, it's a demon. And they're not from the other side, they're from this side, right around you. There's no way to get by death or Christ comes back for his people or you face the judgment when Christ calls you before the throne. That's it. There's no way to get to the other side. So it didn't matter whether you had some Jewish exorcist here who was trying to talk to, to dead people or whether you had some guy in a suit who's on one of your television primetime programs who says he's talking to the other side. He's talking to demons, if anybody's talking to him at all. If you got involved in occultism, in the ritual worship of false gods, you could, you could open up your life to oppression by demonic forces. If you're a Christian, you cannot be possessed. You are possessed by the Holy Spirit. No evil at that point could ever do such a thing to you. But you could open your life up to some chastening of a serious kind, severe season of chastening. That would be of the Lord and His parental love, Hebrews 12. But if you're an unbeliever and you involve yourself in renouncing your reason and exalt mindless sensuality and impurity in your life and you start flirting with places where those demons deceive through occultism and those kind of things, you could be like this individual. Here he is. Despite such a wicked life, Jesus wants to deal with the hardened hearts of the Jewish leadership of Israel and the crowd around them who followed them and he displays a mercy and a loving kindness here that is absolutely begone. <laughs> the mute can speak. Totally relieved. So what we first see is undeniable power over evil. Second, the blasphemy and arrogance. Verse 15, some of them said... He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Yeah, prince of demons. It's an old compound phrase from the Old Testament. Israel basically talked about the gods of ba you know, Baal, the god of the Canaanites and, and the Philistines. And, and basically, Beelzebul was, was just sort of a word that was a compound word. Lord of... of um, in Israel, some commentators think the word was dung or lord of the flies that fly around dung. Lord of the, the desecrate. Created, Lord of the worst. That was the idea. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons, the prince of the demons himself. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. 
So here they are again. It's the go-to accusation against Jesus. I said to you at the outset that if you, if you suppress the truth at this level and you turn to sin and you want to keep suppressing truth, you're going to become more irrational than before. I said in a sermon one time, sin makes you stupid. But I want you to think about this accusation for a moment. They put Jesus, okay, three years, nearly three years of ministry. What he says is very clear. Everyone knows who he is. They're plotting to kill him for it. The crowds know who he is. All Galilee and all Judea knows who he is and what he can do and what his purpose is because it's spreading around. He's going to Jerusalem for a showdown. Everybody knows it. And they put this man, after nearly three years of clear ministry, they put him in partnership with the prince of all evil himself in order to deny who he is. So basically they're saying, look, you do what you do because you're in league with Satan. And when we see a display of power, which we cannot deny, we are watching you wield supernatural power directly from the leader of hell who has empowered you as his top instrument of evil. That's the implication of what they're saying. You're not only not the Christ, you're actually Satan's top version of the Antichrist, working evil in the world. And you start to think about this, and it just the irrationality and illogical nature of it comes out. I mean, all you're teaching, Jesus, that's what they're saying. Everything you've ever taught. Wait a minute, didn't, didn't it happen often that when Jesus taught, people's hearts were softened in order to see him as the Messiah and followed him from that point on? What, excuse me? All your teaching is from, is from satanic influence. He empowered you to teach those things. What? That makes no sense. And all your healings of every disease, especially right after you just preached a sermon about the good news of forgiveness and the power displayed in the healing broke people's hearts, caused conviction, and they believed in you. That's right. Satan empowered him to do all that. Satan empowered you to preach the sermon. Satan empowered you to have the healing miracle. Satan empowered you to, to be able to do that, and it convicted people who then believed in Jesus. What? What? This just is making no sense. Satan healed all those people through Jesus, even though such healings convicted people and they repented and believed in him as the Christ. The very thing Satan hates, the very thing demons don't want anybody to believe. Every demon you've ever rebuked, every demon you've ever silenced. In the land of Gadara, when the demons ran up to you because your very presence as a son of God forced them to their knees and they said... We know who you are, the, the Holy One of God. Are you here to torment us before the time? Even that moment was all empowered by Satan. You've been sent here by Satan. Everything you do is his evil work. You obviously do it because you're pure evil just as he is. That is their claim. Others were arrogant. Some commentators say this is a lesser sin, but I don't think so. Notice verse 16, others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Wait, what? He just healed a man with a demon, with a word. And the power over evil fled. You want a sign? I mean, this is the hardness of someone's heart. You have a relative who you just cannot see bow the knee to Christ. And you say, look, I've just... If God, you think in your mind, if God would just really raise somebody from the dead, the whole world would believe. No. No, because you can't be saved by human reason alone. 
The gospel's reasonable, but you can't be saved by human reason. You can't be saved by anything that's corrupt. We're all corrupt through and through. You're saved by the power of God alone in that moment when the gospel is shared. You're not saved by your own invention, your own strength, your own human ideas, science, anything else, any other source of authority, even if it's just you. They saw him cast a demon out. What more sign do you need? This is at the end of his ministry. They've seen sign after sign after sign. No, we just want one more. If you, if you do one more, I'm in. You reject the display of incontestable authority and power, and yet you say he hasn't displayed enough power. It is irrational. It is chilling blasphemy. It is chilling arrogance. It is hardness of heart. And Jesus is about to give two rebukes and a warning to it. And they unfold so quickly, but they are profound. At that moment, God should have done what he did to the sons of Korah, number 16. Open the earth, swallow them up, close it up, tie a bow on it. Let's get down to Jerusalem. That's what I'm thinking. Wow. Nope. Here is the merciful God we serve who offers two rebukes and a warning. The first rebuke, we'll just put it under this heading. Unbelief always leads to absurdity. We've just seen that. Unbelief always leads to absurdity. Look at verse 17, which starts, by the way, in a frightening way. But he knew their thoughts. (laughs) Luke must have loved to write that stuff. He knew their thoughts. He's a medical doctor. He works on science. He works on physiology, studies of physiology. Everything's concrete. It's under his ancient microscopic eye or whatever. But he he must have loved to write that, that God is omniscient. Now he knew their thoughts. You can reason all you want. God knows every secret thought, every hidden motive, every attempt to deceive with words. And it doesn't matter how many ways you irrationalize in order to suppress the truth. He knows. And Jesus gives a premise here. Notice the premise that everyone has to accept. He said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house against itself falls. There's the premise. Everybody knows. A kingdom needs infrastructure, leadership, resources, and unity. A kingdom has influence. Leaders have authority and submission structures. All that infrastructure has to work. Everybody has to know their place. Then the resources have to be used to supply the kingdom and the people of the kingdom. The people of the kingdom have to agree to the leadership. So infrastructure, unity, resources, influence, power, military might. All that has to be moving in the same direction for a kingdom to flourish. And Jesus says, everybody knows that if you remove an element of the infrastructure and it begins to turn in on itself, eventually it is just going to have weaknesses and it will die. Every civilization we've ever known, every kind has fallen to this fate when infrastructure, resources, and unity, and influence and power are overrun by something within itself. Even our own nation has experienced civil war and just about destroyed everything. And a house, I mean, a house. This this is an estate. This is the imagery of an estate, a family, a family name, heritage. A house against itself, literally the Greek reads, against itself. It's going to eventually fall. It cannot establish ongoing healthy relationships or long-term heritage or legacy. It's over. In fact, even Jesus admits that when he says, look, if the gospel comes to someone's family in one area and not to another, the house is suddenly divided and it won't stand even in that because mother is against daughter and father is against son and sibling is against sibling as, as you're against 
the ethics of the other. This is why the Bible says, when Paul says to the Corinthians, look, I don't want you unequally yoked in a spiritual enterprise with unbelievers. Why? Two different ethics, two completely opposite hearts. Eventually, you're, you're all talking about a spiritual enterprise, but you can't achieve it ultimately with unity because one of you serves Christ, the other serves darkness. It's a premise. It's obvious he knew they couldn't contradict it. And then he asks the ultimate question. Well, if Satan is also divided against himself, like you've said, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Look, I'm casting out demons by the prince of demons. It makes no sense. You're already irrational. It's absurd. And in front of the crowd, they're exposed. And then Jesus puts on their heads an even greater implication in verse 19. Beelzebul cast out demons. By whom do your sons cast them out? So they're going to be your judges. What does he mean by that? Well, in, in Judaism, there were, there were younglings, the up-and-coming generation, and, and they would perform exorcisms. And they were sometimes apparently successful and, and often. You haven't accused your sons within Israel who cast out demons. You haven't accused them of doing it by the power of Satan. And yet they're sometimes unsuccessful. You haven't seen a single exorcism of mine that's been unsuccessful. So that's interesting. So they're sometimes successful, you don't have the gift, and they're sometimes unsuccessful, but you accuse me, who's never unsuccessful, of doing it by the power of Satan. You know what that means? Your own sons are going to be your judges, because they have more power than you, they do things you don't, aren't able to do, and if I do it by Satan, they do it by Satan. How come you're not accusing them? It's just total inconsistency. Total blindness to their own lack of ability to, argument, to argue rationally. And then he gives him an ultimate implication in verse 20. But, but if I do cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he reaches back to Exodus 8, 16, you know, and, and the magicians in Egypt were able to do a few tricks. And then they saw Moses doing things by the power of God that were greater than their Egyptian magicians. And the, the magicians said in Egypt, this is the finger of God. We better... Pharaoh, we better think about this. We can't do those things. Jesus pulls that statement right in here. Look, if I'm casting out demons and it is by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is in your face, in your presence, through me, the person of Christ. I am the Messiah and you're in serious peril. And by the way, just thinking about that, that is a gracious thing to say. He should have snuffed them out. But by kindness... He tells them they're in peril. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It hasn't yet destroyed you, but it's come upon you. This is another listen-up moment. This is another evangelistic opportunity for even people as hardened as this. So unbelief always leads to absurdity in these ways. Secondly, unbelief increases blindness to God's redeeming power. It increases blindness to God's redeeming power. Verse 21. I love this. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. <laughs> I love this. Jesus just goes right for the jugular. All right. If I'm doing this by Satan's power... Um, you guys think that, that you, you have the power, but we've already demonstrated I'm the one with the power. And I cast a demon out. 
That demon represents Satan, whom you agree has had hold on this guy's life. This is a house that Satan dwelt in, this life, this soul of this poor victim. And Satan held it like a stronghold. He couldn't ever get rid of it. Your Jewish exorcist couldn't get rid of the demon. No one has been able to help this guy. And you say Satan is that strong. And indeed he has power given to him right now in a season of evil by God. I came along, said, leave him, and completely took away all of his armor, all of his protection, all of his goods, all of the possession he had in this guy's life, and I completely took it for myself and, and just took his, I plundered him. So who's the stronger? I mean, it should be obvious to them. That's a supernatural power. Satan has a hold of that soul. Jesus comes along and in one word removes all that. Jesus must be the strong man. He must be the stronger one that attacks, overpowers him, takes away from Satan all his armor on which he relied. These are very, very specific statements. Satan relies on his earthly ability to torment souls. He relies on his being the prince of the resources of the earth. But divine power overcomes all that. There is redeeming power in Christ and you are missing it because of unbelief. How many people do you know who, who do not know Christ and do not want to believe in Christ but they see the change in your life? They see a transformed life, a transformed mind, a renewed speech, a holiness that's in your desires and your drive. And when you say to them, do you not see the difference? They don't care. They don't care. They are blind to God's power to redeem. Why? Because they suppress the truth of who He is. They don't want to believe in who He is, so they end up denying the obvious power to transform a soul and miss the opportunity themselves. And so Jesus drives a dagger in in verse 23. He was not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Look, if you're not with me plundering the enemy, then you're the enemy. And if you think you're in a position of neutrality, you're not in a position of neutrality. If you're not with me, you're against me. So here you guys are accusing me, slandering me, blaspheming me, and I'm just telling you I just displayed power and you missed the fact that you're on the, in the enemy's camp. If I can do that to a demon, I can do that to you. Don't fear him who can kill body kill the body, but fear him who can kill body and soul in hell. Fear me. I can take your soul and possess it for eternity in hell if I want to. That's the point Jesus is making. Satan has no control over his soul. I do. This poor soul in unbelief left himself open to the prince of demons. I plundered it just like that. And you're missing the power of redemption right in front of you because you won't believe in me. This last statement here in the last three verses leads to this warning. The first rebuke was unbelief always leads to absurdity. The second is that unbelief increases blindness to God's power. The third is this warning. Unbelief leads to permanent hardness. To potentially permanent hardness. Verse 24, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept, put in order, 
And it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. They go in, they live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. He uses the casting out of a demon to set up an analogy to warn them about what will happen to you if you ignore revelation at this level, if you ignore the truth. And he says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. What does that mean? Well, it had a home. It had a place. Apparently, in the demonic world, having a place and an identity from which then you can operate in your deceptions and steal souls from God, that is their evil intent and that is what they love. He was running around seeking a host or a place. Waterless place is just a word for desolate, just a place without relief. You might think of a desert where you have no water. That's why he says waterless places. It passes through desolate areas without any relief for demons and the kind of relief they seek, which is a host, a home, a place from which to operate their evil. And so he didn't find any, and he says, I'm going to return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. What does that mean? Hey, sometimes unbelievers reap the consequences of their poor choices, and then having gotten a little relief from their poor choices, they clean up their life on the outside. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they join a Bible study. Maybe they go to some program and say that, you know, they got Jesus or they found Jesus. Maybe they come out of their incarceration from, from years of scarred sin and they say something about religion that they now love because they've received some relief and they dress up their eye, I got a job and I'm paying my bills and I'm better off. There's no more earthly consequences. But they never deal with Christ at the heart level. Haven't you ever met somebody who comes out of that and then you, you get shocked that they go right back into it and they plunge into it worse? You ever seen that? That is the analogy Jesus is setting up. If you dress up the outside because you got relief in the common grace of God, but you still ignore the special grace of God in revealing Christ, if you don't believe in Christ or repent of your sin, you are wide open to worse, more hellish influences than you were before. That is a warning, beloved. A warning. That's no shot across the bow. That is a torpedo right at it. Look, do not ignore God's truth. Don't ignore it. If you know and love Christ, you, you haven't ignored it on the salvific side, but it's even a reminder to us, don't, don't think that you can go to God and just get relief for the weaknesses in your life. Go for the jugular with the truth. Don't just clean up the outside. This is devastating. Deal with the heart. Jesus says in verse 26, this demon goes and takes seven other spirits more evil than itself. They go in and live there and the last day of that man becomes worse than the first. I told you, we don't know if this guy got saved. But he's, if he's sitting there listening, having gotten relief, he can now communicate. His mind is now there. His reasoning is locked in. This is a gracious message to him. You better not walk away from Jesus having been given relief from your oppression and demonic influence and then go think you're going to go sweep your life up and clean up a few things and you finally got relief and you're back to your old ways of rejecting God and living for yourself. Don't do that. Because you're wide open. Why are you wide open? I mean, it seems like you cleaned up your life a little. Yeah, but that's the point. That's worse unbelief than before. To believe that your unbelief is, is good enough or self-righteousness is not unbelief. Those are, those are killer, killer features of unbelief. 
To imagine that your unbelief isn't unbelief or that your self-righteousness is somehow righteous enough, it's the kiss of death. And it might be just a footnote to say, if you have come through scars in your life and you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in a very vulnerable place right now. Because here you sit under God's truth, his kindness, his compassion, as, as my meager attempt to explain it comes to your heart and the Holy Spirit can take it home to your heart. Here you are with an opportunity. And if you say, well, I'm here with a nice group of people getting some moral relief from my life. I like this group of people. I would encourage you strongly to get on your knees before God, get by yourself before God and plead with Him to keep you from this sin of dressing up the outside, sweeping out a few areas of your life rather than dealing with Christ Himself and the issue of repentance and His authority. If you're here today and you don't believe in Christ, it's because you don't accept His authority. You're not neutral. You're not just trying to figure things out. You are rejecting his authority, mild though it may seem. Nice and cleaned up though it may seem. You are, in fact, rejecting his authority. And you cannot do that without becoming vulnerable. Unbelief eventually leads to potentially permanent hardness, and you don't want that. Plead with Christ to open your eyes and show you. What a grace from the Lord to to talk about the absurdity that unbelief always leads to and to talk about the blindness to redeeming power that, that is there. I mean, if you, if you are here and you don't know Christ, you've got redeemed people all around you. The power is there. Their mind is changed. They're imperfect sinners, but they, they have desires that gravitate toward Christ and his worship. That is, that is power, divine power. If you sit there today in the unbelief of a cleaned up life, but you haven't yet repented and believed in Christ, he's calling you. He's reaching out to you in kindness, just like he did to this poor victim here, and just like he even did to the hardened blasphemers. The Lord is kind, isn't he? So here's the deal. This was the day that, that they called Christ the Antichrist, and he still gave them the gospel. Don't ignore unbelief in your life. Don't ignore the, the features of it, the subtleties of it. If you're a Christian, you're not in peril. You're, you're free. You're not condemned. You're in Christ. But unbelief can lead you to ineffectiveness and further blindness and even more chastening from the Lord until you wake up. And this is a warning about living the externals rather than dealing with the heart. Christians deal with the heart. We take the word of God to the heart and we tremble at his word and we humble ourselves under it. And if you have a problem with Scripture's authority, even though you don't think you do, if you have a problem with Scripture's authority, it'll manifest itself in unbelief and skepticism and resistance and trying to live a neutral life like you don't have a choice to make. We're commanded to believe. To believe in Christ is a command. If you haven't believed in Christ yet, you're, you're disobeying the command. And you're vulnerable. What a sweet way for the Gospel of Luke to remind us from the Lord's life what Jesus says, he who's not with me is against me. I pray you're with Christ today. Let's bow. Lord, thank you for the kindness of your love in these messages. Thank you for the sweetness of your grace in teaching us, humbling us, 
such clarity in, in a narrative of what happened. I pray that you did, in fact, pour mercy out upon that man who was freed from demonic forces. I'd love to meet him in heaven one day. And maybe even some leaders in Israel, just like Nicodemus later in his life, it would be great to see some of them in glory who were there on that day and for whom your warnings fell upon their hearts with impact and force, shattering their pride. Lord, we know that unbelief is irrational. It's absurd. But it's because we're bent to suppress the truth by nature. Thank you for giving us a way to be rescued by faith alone in Jesus Christ, whose perfect sacrificial death and offering for sin was accepted by you for our sake. And if we will just admit that we're sinners, fully deserving of hell and wrath, and yet you have provided a way and just put our faith in you and follow you in repentance and humility, you will have shown yourself faithfully drawing us, convicting us, saving us, rescuing us. You respond to the softened heart. Soften our hearts with this truth today. In your mercy, we ask these things. Amen. All right, let's stand. If you joined us today, you're a guest with us. So thrilling to have you. There will be some signs in the lobby that point you to our office center. I'm going to be over there in a few minutes. I just would love to greet you. So if you're a guest...